morning. One of the reasons the early church did so well in taking off and covering the early Mediterranean world is they did not have multimedia. But thanks to those who have helped this morning, I guess we can turn me down a little bit or someone will lose an, an ear. Um, good morning to all of you. And um, this portion of our service, uh, we look into the Word of God. We have a lengthy section here today. Um, things feel a little uneven this morning to me. So I'd, I'd like to pray again before we read the Word of God. Let's do that, try to settle our hearts a bit. Father, we uh, come before you once more, and we ask your Holy Spirit to superintend uh, this service, this portion of our service, and the remainder as we come before your table. It calm our hearts to help us to focus, to think, to understand why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing, why you call us here to this place. Um, Father, help me to, to minister the word of God, not just simply to present a sermon right now and to help us to receive it, all of us, including the preacher, as to what you're saying to us today in an incredibly important section of your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Returning this morning to Matthew 27, uh, if you have your Bible, and I would encourage you to bring a Bible with you to church, um, when you go hunting, you bring your gun, if you hunt. So when you go to church, you bring your Bible. Uh, if you go weightlifting, you bring your weight belt, right? Yes. So uh, please, uh, let's try to remember that. It's important. Matthew 27, we have a long section here. I'd like to begin reading at verse 26 through 66 this morning. Let us hear the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God this morning. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail! King of the Jews, they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And they were coming out. They found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, 
they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers died with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from us, and we will believe in him. God rescue him now if he delights, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers crucified with him were also insulting him with the same now, hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielding up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, True, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on him from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee with Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich Marimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of rock, and he rolled a large stone. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. On the sixth day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal 
on the stone. May God bless this reading of his word to us today. We begin with the scourging of Jesus. Verse 26 says, But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. John's account is more precise. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The flagrum was a whip with a short handle and two or three long cords, each with long balls or mutton bones at the end. In action, the cords cut the skin while the balls and bones created very deep contusions. The result was significant hemorrhaging and considerable weakening of the victim. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I go to see the doctor and he gives me the option of a little local injection or putting me out, I'll opt for going out every single time. Even if it's the smallest thing, so many oftentimes, I will take that option. It is unparalleled in our imagination or anywhere in our experience to imagine the horror of the flagrum. In addition to being scourged, he was mocked. Verse 27 records, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Luke 23.11 sums it this way. Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Now, a Roman cohort is composed of about 360 to 800 soldiers. So this is a large group. And they stripped his clothes, put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted a crown of thorns on his head and a reed they put in his hand like he was holding a scepter, and all to make him look like a mock king. And they all kneeled down before him, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. What incredible irony. Since Jesus is exercising his kingship through submission and suffering. The Roman soldiers have unwittingly furthered God's secret purposes by dressing Jesus up as a king. In fact, Paul writes this, very interesting, God is not mocked. Well, obviously Jesus is being mocked, so what in the world is going on here? It's that you can't mock him even if you want. Because if you try to mock him, oh, you're the king. Let's put a scarlet robe on you. Let's put a scepter in your hand. Let's make fun of you. If you're the Christ, then come down from the cross. All they do is play right in to God's secret purpose in the suffering and in the cross. The deep irony of it all. You're just playing right into God's hands. But then we see what happens. In verses 30 and 31, they spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head with that crown of thorns, pressing those thorns ever deeper 
into his skull, the blood coming down his face. They took the robe off and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. What we're seeing now is the soldiers reversing the mock coronation and now doing an anti-coronation. They spit in contempt instead of kneeling in reverence. They pull the scepter from his hand and beat his crowned head with it. They strip off the scarlet robe and replace it with Jesus' own robe. So now the Romans reveal what they really think about Christ. Let me ask you this morning, what do we really think about Jesus this morning? Do we really understand who he is and what he's done? So many people in these weeks particularly during the time of Lent going into Easter are going to play the irony. They're going to come and they're going to see the purple draped over the cross as they enter into the fancy church. They're going to hear about the cross, about the suffering, about the crucifixion. They'll have the black spot on their face. Go through all the motions. But I ask you this morning, is it just part of the irony? Is it a real coronation of the one in whom we worship, the one in whom before we bow, the one in whom before we say, Yay! Here he comes. Hosanna to the highest. And as he enters into the holy city. Is it real? Or is it not? Now I want to ask why. Why was Jesus mocked and scourged? We often pass over this question. I ask this question because the Bible says that the Old Testament system of sacrifices points to Jesus, the Lamb of Calvary. Now, think for a moment in your Old Testament. When people brought rams and bulls all to be given up and sacrificed in the Old Testament temple, were the animals mocked and brutalized? No. Their deaths were very quick and merciful. So, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament system of sacrifices, he is the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world, why is it that he is being scourged? Why is it that he is being mocked? Why is this happening to him. What you are seeing in the Passion Hours is the overwhelming wrath of God poured out on the Son for our sins. Again, in many corners, Lent is that black mark on the forehead and so forth and so on. But what we are seeing in this particular time is Jesus absorbing the eternal, incomprehensible, immense, unbelievable, incontrovertible wrath of God over the sins of God's people. It wasn't enough that he died. He had to be brutalized. He had to be tortured. He had to take hell right there. Right then, because although the wages of sin is death, death is an eternal fire. 
I must say it this morning, to be honest to the Bible, he took it. He stood in our place. He's the vicarious substitute for us. Did you know that God is red hot angry with the sinner every day? Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels, feels, indignation every day. Our indignation is not God's indignation. Our indignation is when we've stubbed our toe. When the guy in front of us at the red light is taking a little bit too long to get moving once it turns green. God's indignation covers the entire universe. It spills out over time and over space. We can't even comprehend this indignation. The early reformers had a phrase, irum de placare, meaning to placate the wrath of God. In his suffering and death, Jesus did two things for us this morning. In atoning for our sins, he was an expiation. He removed the guilt of sin. And so many people this morning will say, yay and amen, woohoo. No more guilt for me. But he also satisfied the wrath of God to make us favorable to God. People will say today, well, that's an ancient archaic concept. Why would you mention such a thing? Because it's right here in the text that we read. He removed, satisfied the wrath of God for us. Do you understand the passion of Christ is God's opinion of our sins? Let me repeat that. Do you understand this morning that as we read these verses, we are seeing God's opinion of our sins? What we're reading is not a record of some distant story. These pictures are what God thinks of us each and every day in our sin apart from Christ. But more and more people want to describe sinful activity as a mistake as if that softens the guilt. Like a child who adds two and two and comes up with five, you're not going to say, oh, you were bad. We think of mistakes as being part of the human condition. In fact, we're so accustomed to our fallenness that we refer to normal, everyday disobedience to God that doesn't bother us uh, so much. And so we say that famous old saying that my mother used to say, to err is human. To forgive is divine. Not such a big deal. If that's the case, then this morning let's put ourselves on the flagrant post. The mutton bones digging into our flesh and muscles down to our rib cages and thorns being smashed into our skulls and the better part of 800 Roman soldiers spitting in our faces. No, it's a really big deal. Psalm 711, he is indignant every single solitary day. The reason why he's different from the Old Testament animals is because they didn't absorb the wrath of God. He did. And I just want to say, amen. To that. 
Churches today may offer up a softer, gentler vision of God and think the wrath of God an archaic notion, but God doesn't think so. So Jesus took the blows. Because he took the blows, we must take sin seriously. Next is crucifixion. The end of verse 31, and led him away to crucify him. There's some distance between the flagrum post and the Via Dolorosa. The Via Dolorosa means way of pain. An apt name for this street with Jesus bearing a cross. The Roman cross, some of us work out in here. I think you can tell who it is. Myself and maybe a couple of others. I'm behind in the pack here at my age. Weighs about 300 pounds. Okay, that's the six plates on the 45-pound bar that you want to bench press. I've done it once in my life. One time I've done it. Now you've dragged 300 pounds from the flagrum post all the way down to the Via Dolorosa. You're halfway down. You're at the, between the 12th and the 14th station of the Via Dolorosa, and you just can't handle it anymore. And so the Roman soldiers, they're not going to touch that thing. They grab a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Simon was a North African, convert to Judaism, and was in Jerusalem for Passover. Now, we think of Jesus' words, whoever wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In this particular case, Simon is bearing Jesus' own cross. He is in actual contact with the blood of Jesus and feeling the moisture of his sweat upon his skin. Right there, Simon saw the man. The impact so great that Simon became a Christ follower, we know, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention Simon and his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, Rufus being mentioned by Paul in Romans 16, verse 13, which also indicates in that verse that Simon's wife became a Christ follower as well because of the event. To blend in a little church history, within 25 years of the crucifixion, the entire family is believed to have become missionaries. Let me ask you a question. Has the blood of Jesus touched you and what effect has it had on you? Have you felt the sweat? Have you seen the man? Because when his blood touches you, you're going to pick up a cross. Have you seen the man this morning? Because when the blood of Jesus touches you, it will change you. Have you seen the man? Because when the blood of Jesus touches you, it's going to send you. Have you seen the man? Simon saw the man. 300 pounds. 
Verse 33 says they came to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Jesus is nailed to the cross. The soldiers casting lots are taking bets for his clothing. It was a big day, and the soldiers wanted to keepsake. They wanted a T-shirt from Disney World. It was all in fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 was written 1,000 years before the crucifixion when crucifixion had not yet been invented to show the supernatural revelation that undergirds Psalm 22 and the great love of God for us in Christ foretelling a thousand years previously exactly what would happen on this day. I want to skip to verse 37 for now and I want to return to the drink that is offered to Jesus. In verse 37, they nailed the sign above him which says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Again, see the irony. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and they mock him even more. Verse 40, the people jeer. They look up at him. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They're looking up at him. Don't you understand that this is exactly what the unbelieving world is doing today? They do look up to him, whether they realize it or not. And again, bringing Paul back into the picture, the mocking. They're just falling right into the secret plan of God. But the king wasn't there to save himself. He was there to save us. He wasn't there to do a miracle of temporary value, healing people who eventually got sick again and died. He was there to do a miracle of eternal value, healing his people who would never be sin sick again. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Do you know him? Have you given your life to him? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? There is no one else. This is it. Then we come to the thieves. Matthew's account of the thieves is very short. Did you notice that? And it doesn't highlight the one penitent thief. And so we go to Luke 23 for a moment. And in verse 39, it says that the first thief looks over at Jesus and says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This first thief is a model of how not to respond to Jesus Christ. What a picture 
of a spiritually destitute, worldly man questioning and mocking God. He is the insurgent ant kicking against the foothills of Mount Everest, demanding it flatten out so the ant can walk through. No recognition of his sin. To this thief, Jesus only a matter of convenience. But this is also a whole segment of the church today, I'm afraid. No spirit of brokenness. No real sense of the cross. Suffering has interrupted their plans. So if they do look to God, if you're who you say you are, then do something about the mess that I'm in. The second thief is sorry for his sins. He looks across the hanging body of Jesus to the other thief and incredulity asks, do you not fear God? The penitent thief is beside himself and the other speaks so casually and irreverently to Christ. He is only storing up more wrath for himself. So the penitent thief says, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Stop. That's where Christian experience begins. That's where the boat pulls out of the dock for us. I read on a Facebook post a couple of days ago a question that my jaw dropped. Is repentance necessary for salvation? And as I read the comments going down, many said no. If repentance is not necessary for salvation, then what did I just read and we just read together in chapter 27 of Matthew? Now, the Christian life is full of beautiful promises, but you'll never see them unless we too understand what we so justly deserve in the cross of Christ. Martin Luther said, if you see yourself as a little sinner, you will inevitably see Jesus as a little Savior. Going back to Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God. Can you hear him? Why have you forsaken me? Now, at this point, some offer a sentimentalism. The father turned his back on the son so he wouldn't have to turn his back on you. Oh, what a great Hallmark card that is. I love it. But really, the reason is this. God cannot look on sin. Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Conversely, we sinners cannot look at God without dying. So, for God to look upon us and for us to look upon God, we need a mediator. But something has happened to the mediator. Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, and it's happening right now, right here. This is it. 
He sinned. Can God look on sin? No. So what does, the God, what does God do, the Father? Turns his eyes. Well, John 18.4 says that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, if he knew that the Father was going to turn his face, why did Jesus ask, why have you forsaken me? This is not a question in search of an answer. This is Jesus expressing the horror of Psalm 22 from where the question comes. Either taking the sins of God's people on yourself alone is the essence of your messianic calling, or it's not. But if it's in you, then you give full vent at the worst moment of your life to express the written script in Psalm 22, written hundreds of years previously to the Father right there, right then. This is it. The Father turns his face. He can't look on sin. We need a mediator. But the mediator is kind of stuck at the moment. Let's look at the two drinks offered to Jesus in verse 47. Some think he's calling on Elijah, so to keep him awake to see if Elijah is going to show up, more mocking, one man ran for a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed, put it up to Jesus' mouth, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Now, Earlier in verse 34, they offered him wine mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink that. But in verse 47, he's willing to drink the other drink. I'm going to ask the question, why? Why does Jesus take the drink offered in verse 34, but he turns down the drink in verse 47? The first drink with gall or vinegar was a painkiller. Jesus refused it because he wanted to feel the full pain and condemnation due us for our sins. But he took the second drink because it was a stimulant. And he realized that at that point on the cross, he had not yet completely fulfilled the absorbing of the pain and condemnation due us for his sin. And so he needed to stay awake. Now. Staying awake, what is the exact next thing that the text says in verse 50? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And John 19, we all know it, it is finished. In verses 51 through 54, we see the miraculous effects of his death. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tearing of the veil gives us access to the throne room of God in prayer, all spiritual. The splitting of the rocks means that the death of Jesus has effect on more than just the spiritual things, but also includes the natural world looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. 
That's the final part of redemption. If it's a part of redemption, then someone had to pay for it. Who paid for it? Jesus. He paid for the new heavens and the new earth right here at the cross. And we see newness of life here as well. Tombs are broken open in the resurrection and many bodies and Old Testament saints were raised and coming out of the tombs, entering, listen to this, entering the holy city and appearing to many. And verse 54, <laughs> now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Oh yeah, oh yeah. If I'm walking down the streets of Jerusalem and here comes my great, 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 great grandfather who was martyred during Old Testament times under Isaiah and he's store shopping down the streets of Jerusalem, you better believe I'm going to say this truly was the Son of God. God's okay with giving us proofs. This is a pretty significant proof. And then the burial, verses 57 through 61. Jesus has been crucified. So isn't mention of his burial superfluous? The Apostles' Creed does not think so. Crucified. Dead. Buried. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. And so the Bible wants us to know that he is bottom of the ocean, eyes X'd out, dead as a doornail. Because the Romans, the, the Jews are going to come later, as we saw here in the text, and they're going to say, oh no. They're going to try to come, they're going to try to steal the body. Or maybe others have said he's alive. He didn't really die. He just swooned. The record says he's dead. Now, we've covered 40 verses, and this is the most I've ever preached on in my life. But we've covered a lot. I want to bring it all together in one illustration. One illustration. When a murder happens and the police arrive and they find the body riddled with bullets, several stab wounds, the body bludgeoned beyond recognition, the police typically do not refer to this as a murder. They refer to it as a crime of passion. Now there's two things that the police know immediately about what has happened. Number one, whoever did this was unbelievably out of their mind in fury. Second thing that they know is that the murderer, the assailant, was someone close to the deceased. 
Now, we've already looked into the Old Testament. We've asked the question, why it is that the animals were not brutalized, but he was, and we've answered that question. As you look at the body of Jesus in your mind's eye, and you hear it through the preaching of the Word of God and the reading of the Word of God especially, you don't see a murder. You see what we typically refer to as a crime of passion. A crime from the vantage point of the people who are committing it, but it's a right doing from the vantage point of God's perspective. God's not committing a crime. But I want us to keep that picture in our minds just for a moment because there's two things that we now know about this deceased individual. Number one, whoever did this to him was unbelievably really in a rage. The second thing we know is that whoever did it was someone very close. Who did it? It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. They were instruments. Who did it? It was his father. The father planned it. The son carried out the plan. And the father laid all our past, present, future, all the wrath of himself, just beating, using those men, using that flagrum, using those whips, using those spits, using the pulling of the beard, using all of it, on the son, on himself, God himself taking human form, the man we know as Jesus Christ, and going to that place and going to that cross for you and for I. For me, how we cannot see in this the immeasurable wrath of God being poured out on the Son and yet also at the same time not see the incredible grace. Oh, what grace, what love, what mercy that you and I are these hours. And if the Son make ye free, ye are free indeed. Father, we thank you for this, your word to us today. And we pray that you would bless us mightily. We are people deserving of wrath but have received grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us, our vicarious substitute. We praise you. Lord, let us not walk away gently from these words today that we've heard in your word, but to reflect upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go to the table,